Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Let's stand to our feet and worship. My name is Ryan Burton. I'm a worship pastor here at Fellowship. So thankful that you all have gathered this morning to sing praises to our King. So let's sing together. Come thou found of every blessing.
fellowship. You can have a seat. Hey, I'd like to thank everybody for being here with us this morning. And I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us online. Hey, I'm going to make an attempt to do the world's shortest Devo. You ready? Okay. So anytime we, we experience a, a teaching on God's word or we are reading God's word ourselves, there's three areas of our life that it should affect, that it should change. Uh, change our head, our hearts, and our hands. And so this last series that we just got uh, done going through on race uh, was a perfect example uh, of that. The, the first series that Michael taught, or the first teaching that Michael did on race, talked about uh, God's ultimate plan. He was the one who created all the different races, and it's always been his plan that there'll be somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping around the throne, and, and our, our minds should line up with God's uh, mind. And then he talked about, then we had Dr. Hawkins come in and he taught on his own experiences as a black man growing up in America. And we hope that touched your heart uh, as you heard those stories. And then finally, last week, Clark talked on, uh, man, what are some practical steps that we can do as a church? Our hands, our actions, what can we actually do uh, to jump in uh, to God's story? And so this morning, he mentioned this ministry called Furniture Friends. And this morning, we wanted to invite somebody uh, Justin, would you come on up? He helps run Furniture Friends, and it's an incredible ministry based right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Hey, tell us a little bit about Furniture Friends. Yeah, I wanted to share just a cool story about how God has brought the nations to Northwest Arkansas and how Furniture has opened up the doors for us to serve them. So there was an international student, JJ, from East Asia, and he came to Fayetteville, and it was his first day in the United States and we showed up at his empty apartment bringing some furniture. And he really needed the furniture, but he was very confused on why we were doing what we were doing. And he was really timid. Uh, after we delivered the furniture, we always like to share the Good Samaritan story. And as we were sharing the story, his demeanor just completely changed. His timidity was gone. And you could tell there was a deep hunger uh, for what we were sharing. And really, it was like the first time he had heard about Jesus or the Bible. So the next day, he calls me up and he says, hey, I really want to go deliver furniture to new students, and I wanna learn more about that God you told me about last night. Uh, so we actually began a Bible study. He invited two more students from East Asia, and we got to study God's word for the first time in his entire life. Uh, and probably the coolest moment was we had a Thanksgiving party. It was kind of a larger party before COVID, and there were students from about 10, 15 countries there, and we were going around, you know, what are you thankful for? And JJ in front of everyone said, I'm thankful that when I came to the U.S., I got to learn about God for the very first time and through Furniture Friends. So I'm thankful to Furniture Friends and learning about God. So God is moving. I love in Acts 17, it says, yeah, yeah. praise God. It says God has brought people and nations so that they could seek and find them. And he has brought the nations to Northwest Arkansas. So Justin, uh, 
So we're really not asking for more furniture. Matter yeah. of fact, I helped you a couple of weeks ago, like move the furniture into a new <laughs> warehouse. There's yeah. tons of furniture. So really, how can people help out? Yeah, there's two main ways. One is we need help delivering furniture. So once a month, we have a service day, and you can volunteer to come help us deliver furniture to new students. Second is every week, we have a prayer and outreach time. Right now, we're doing that on Thursdays. And so you could get involved delivering furniture or doing the prayer and outreach with us. And yeah, our website is up there. You can contact us, furniturefriends.co, or text or call me. There's my number. Hey, real quick, uh, you told me before, how many... How many different apartments would, do you think there's furniture from Furniture Friends in right now yeah. with internationals? About 350. 350 yeah. internationals that they've practically touched. Uh, so that's incredible. Yeah. Hey, uh, just wanted to point you all to that. It is FurnitureFriends.co. That's not a typo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's FurnitureFriends.co. Justin M., you can feel free to give him a call, shoot him a text. We'd love to have more people get involved. We say Ju- Justin M., not his full last name because he's planning uh, to go overseas and serve overseas in a, in a country that can be kind of dangerous. So mm-hmm. let's pray for him and let's pray for Furniture Friends and please uh, get involved. I've personally done it and it's incredible. Yeah. Let me thank pray. Yeah. Dear God, we just thank you so much for Furniture Friends and how you are just ministering to the nations. You're bringing the nations to us. And so God, let's take advantage of this opportunity and just serve them in a practical way. God, I thank you so much for Justin and his partner Sam as they just reach out and minister, but they're planning to go overseas and serve in a difficult place. God, we're just so proud of them for taking the gospel and taking uh, that risk because you are worth it. And so God, bless them. May the gospel get into areas that it's never has before because of what they're doing. In your name we pray. Amen.
worthy of our honor and glory. God, as we can rest in, in your goodness and your grace, we pray that you remind us of that goodness. God, so that our worship just overflows this morning as we continue to learn um, through teaching. Uh, and then we, we follow that and respond in worship. God, we're thankful for your son Jesus. It's in him we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all can grab a seat. Morning, everybody. My name is Garland. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would indulge me, uh, COVID-friendly, of course, and even online in the living room, wherever you're watching this, uh, if you would indulge me this one little favor, if you would turn to the person that, that you're with, spouse, kids, whatever it may look like, uh, if you don't know the person, then maybe, uh, you know, introduce yourself, COVID, you know, elbow bump or something. And I want you to answer this question. You can be as uh, serious and deep as you want or as lighthearted and silly as you want. I want you to answer this question. What is your biggest fear? Go. We'll turn back in a minute and we'll get, to, get going here. Person next to you, one here talking now, what's your biggest fear? Hopefully some good ones here. Biggest fear. Keep sharing. Yeah, 20 seconds, 15 seconds. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I'll share with you mine. So uh, my, my biggest fear, and it's not all that profound. I wish I had a bigger one. Uh, my biggest fear probably is uh, it's, it's the fear of heights. How many of you are afraid of heights? Let me see it. All right. Uh, it's not just heights, although that does scare me. It's heights that require any sort of balance uh, to perform on those particular heights. So like our uh, air return filters that we have to change in our house are like 20 feet up. I have no idea why it was built that way. And so we, literally yesterday I had to change them. I reminded while my phone went off and I've got this 16 foot ladder up. I've got my wife. I've got the kids. And Sarah's just there. Like I've got her holding it with her feet on it because I'm just deathly afraid of anything that requires balance uh, that is up high. I remember when I first started working on staff here, I did student ministry uh, for 10 years here at Fellowship, and we would take students out to Colorado, so Ravencrest and Timberline, these different places out there, and we would always take uh, the students rock climbing. And I remember one particular time, this is when I was learning about how bad my fear of heights is, we've got about 15 students at this rock, and uh, this isn't like half dome, all right? This is like a 40, 40 foot, not that difficult rock, and I was sort of sitting back, you know, hey, y'all go first, you know, I wanna make sure y'all get to go. And then when it got to my turn, it was basically like, I've got all these students going, you gotta go, come on. And I'm like, I have this internal problem. Do I, do I wimp out or do I get up there knowing my fear of heights? And of course, I was like, well, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be wimpy in front of all the students. So I, I said, okay, I'll go. And they, they put the rope on you and, uh, you know, you, you, you say, all right, I'm belay on, I'm getting ready to climb. And I got, now keep in mind, like 10th grade girls, were easily doing this, all right? Like they were climbing this with, they were overcoming their fear. I got like maybe 12 feet up on this rock. And if you've ever rock climbed before, like it's pretty tiring. It's taxing on your body, like on your muscles, but it's especially tiring and especially taxing 
when all of your major muscle groups are shaking as you're trying to hold on to the rock. So I'm up on this rock, and I remember the point that I eventually gave up. At this point, the rope's pretty much holding me, and I'm shaking, my legs are all shaking, my arms are all shaking, and I'm just, I'm just hugging, leaning into the rock, utterly terrified. I eventually just said, I can't, I can't do it anymore, you gotta let me down. And my fear of being seen as a wimp was way overcome than my fear of, of heights in that moment. I'm just deathly terrified of heights. And this morning, we're gonna talk about unshakable courage. Like having unwavering courage to stare down our fears. And uh, here's what the three points that we're gonna look at as we look at unshakable courage. First, we're gonna ask these three questions. The first one's gonna be, how do I get it? Secondly, why do I need it? And lastly, where does it come from? What does it source, this sort of unshakable, unwavering courage? If you think about it, one of the most foundational questions to your life and mine is how will I navigate my fears and my anxieties? How can I move forward? Now, uh, that's where we're going. We have to do a hard pivot right now. Like, we gotta take a time out, and we're gonna, die, we're gonna go over here for like eight minutes. We gotta go classroom for about eight minutes because we're gonna start a new series on the book of Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible, the narrative called Joshua. We're gonna be in this series from now right up until around uh, Palm Sunday. And so anytime you drop into a story right in the middle of it, it's helpful to know what's going on in that story. And that's what we're gonna do for the next like seven or so minutes. So go here with me. We gotta, we gotta get our arms around what's going on in the book of Joshua. And the way I'd like to do this, we're just gonna ask who, what, where, when, why on this book and some of the characters in it. So here's where we start. Uh, who, who is Joshua? Who is this guy? Well, his Hebrew name is the Yehoshua. We often say Yeshua as a, as a we, we kind of miss that middle vowel, Yehoshua. His Greek name is Iesus. Now, the reason I put that on there for the handful of, of nerds in the room that care about such things, Ye Ye Yehoshua and Iesus, those are both Jesus's Hebrew and Greek names. Jesus's name in Greek is Iesus. And so Joshua and Jesus, it's the same name. It's a common name in Hebrew, and it means Yahweh saves. That's what this name means. We give different, uh, we give different glosses in English for Joshua and Jesus, but it's the same Hebrew and Greek name. Who is this Joshua guy? Well, he's a military leader, and we're gonna see that in the book of Exodus. He's a soldier. He's also a spiritual leader leading the people of Israel. We're gonna see he's a chosen leader. He's the successor of Moses. That's, that's who this guy Joshua is. He's gonna be one of the central figures in this sixth book of the Bible. But we also gotta understand what's going on in the story like if you drop into the middle of a movie that you've never seen before, you have no idea what's going on. That's kind of what it's like to drop into the book of Joshua without any context. So let's figure out what's going on in the story. If you've taken Panorama of the Bible, this should be review for you. And I'm gonna make a Panorama plug at the end of this. Uh, here's how the story of the Bible begins. The first 11 chapters, first 11 pages goes like this. God created this universe. He's the author and the agent of creation. And he invited humanity in this unique role to take the blessing and the awesomeness and the beauty of the creator God and to bless the rest of the world with it. But what we see in the third chapter of the Bible, we call it the fall, is instead of taking that blessing out to the rest of the world, instead humanity takes brokenness and self-centeredness and selfishness, we call that sin, out into the rest of the world. And those ripple effects go out in these stories of the fall 
and the tower, but God has an answer. That's our first 11 chapters. The answer to this problem picks up the story in Genesis chapter 12. God selects one family, the family of Abraham, and through this family, we will bring this family into experience the beauty and the awesomeness of the creator God and take that out to bless the rest of the nations. We get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the book of Genesis. And the, the rest of the first five books, getting us the context for this story, they, they pick up with the people of Israel. Several hundred years later, we find them stuck in slavery in Egypt. And this is the let my people go, Moses figure. He comes and we have the exodus, which means, it just means leaving. They're going to be set free from their slavery. God will constitute this people at the mountain of Sinai and say, this family, through this family, I'm going to consecrate them, make them holy to bless all of the nations. But that pesky problem called self-centeredness and brokenness and sin, it rears its ugly head again. And instead of trusting their God, the Israelites rebel against him and they wander in the wilderness for a generation. Now, that's the backstory to what's going on with Joshua. And you can see Joshua in Exodus to Deuteronomy, Joshua will be in that part of the story. We're gonna see him all over the place. Then he becomes the, one of the primary characters in the sixth book of the Bible. Now, just so you can see it, I'm a visual person, and so it helps me to see what's going on. The north, the, to the top of the map, that's the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Sinai Peninsula. This is the Red Sea down below us right here. This is one of the possible routes of the Exodus in the story that we just walked through, Exodus through uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And just so you can see, because I, I like to picture these things, this is what that wilderness looks like. Beautiful, huh? Uh, this is what some people, one of the sites for Numbers 13, the Kadesh Barnea Rebellion. Uh, this is where some scholars think that that took place. I like to see things. I hope you do too, because it helps me to be able to put myself there. Now, where are we when this book of Joshua will pick up? So who, what, where are we? The book of Deuteronomy ends like this. And Moses, the servant of Yahweh, the creator God of Israel, all caps Lord, he died there in Moab. Now, Moab is this plain region, this area just west of the nation of, just east of the nation of Israel. This is a picture from the west looking out toward the plains of Moab. That little thing wandering in the foreground right there, that's the Jordan River. And out there is where the book of Joshua is going to pick up. Now, I'm showing you these pictures because I am a visual person. And let me just tell you, if you're going, man, that's really cool. Like, I would love to see that. Let me just, in November, this is a shameless plug. Myself and Nick Rowland, we're gonna be taking about 40 people from our church to Israel for about 10 days. So if you're interested in that at all, if you're going, man, that's cool, I wanna, th I wanna talk about that, shoot me an email, come talk to me after the service. We still got some spots available, so we'd love to take a crew of people from our church to get to go see these things in person. We gotta ask the when question. Scholars debate. Now, some of you don't care about history. I really care about history because this isn't mythology we're talking about here. We're talking about real events that happen in real space-time here in our world that we can find in the dirt or not. And so we're not talking a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. These are real things that happen here. And here's where the scholars debate. The, the timing of our Exodus story, and thus the Joshua story, some put it around 1400 BC, and others a little bit later, around 1200 BC. The, the battle essentially comes down to what we think the Bible says, and then what we see in the archeology span and how we put those two things together. This is a picture of the dig at Jericho. So we're gonna be looking at that story here in a few weeks, the, the, the archeological dig at Jericho. If 
If you are interested in such things, which this may be like four of you, let me recommend a book to you. It's called The Reliability of the Old Testament by Ken Kitchen. It's a big book, it's a thick book, but buy it. It's really interesting, and I, I, I thought it was a page turner. My wife uh, did not. She was laughing at me the whole time I was reading it. I was reading it on vacation at the beach, just loving it. Uh, if you are a different person, though, maybe right now you're going, I find archaeology so boring, and I find history dull, and I find all of this stuff to be not interesting to me. Let me just make one little statement to you. This guy was an archaeologist, all right? Archaeologists, archaeology can be cool, okay? It can be an adventure, so don't, don't snub it too quickly. It can be cool. Now, why? Who, what, where, when, why? Here is my purpose statement, so take it or leave it, for the, the book of Joshua. Here's what's going on, the why. Why put this book together, and why tell these stories in this particular way? Here's kind of my working definition or answer to that question. The book of Joshua describes Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, his giving his people the land he had promised to give them. Now, certainly a huge part of this book is going to be the telling of God making due on his promise to bring this group of people, this, these tribes, into this land. Certainly, that's a huge part of the book. That's, why, that's one of the answers as to why this book was written. But there's a, another piece of it that I think sometimes we miss, and, and don't miss it as we go through the series. The other piece is what comes as the second half of this kind of purpose statement. Why record these stories in this way? Why tell these stories, not these stories? Why fashion this book like this? I think this is, this is instructive. And to instruct generations of Israel, future generations, to trust and obey Yahweh. Why? Because he's a faithful covenant maker and he's a faithful covenant keeper. It's designed, the book, to put you on the spot to, to make a decision. Do I trust Yahweh or not? Is he worth obeying or not? You decide. Here's why I put that second half in there. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the very last chapter of Joshua, Joshua 24. This is Joshua's, in the, in the mouth of Joshua, I think this is the summary statement for this book. It comes in the midst of the narrative, but man, it summarizes, I think, the purpose of this book. Joshua 24, notice it. It's a decision moment. This book is forcing the reader to decide something. Now, fear Yahweh he says, and serve him. Give him everything he got with all faithfulness. Throw away, make a decision. Will you trust and serve this God or these other gods? Make a choice because if you choose Yahweh, you're chunking all these other ones. You're saying no. Look at verse 15. But if serving Yahweh, the Lord, seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Make a choice. Now look at the last sentence in this. Uh, I wanna know, Raise your hand, don't be embarrassed by this. How many of you, either in your house growing up or where you live now, have this last sentence on, usually it's on like a wooden carving or it's on a plate. Sometimes it's in something that's been made out of cloth and it's usually in the kitchen or the dining room. Sometimes it's on like a little, uh, like in a frame by the sink in like the bathroom. You finish it for me. I wanna know if you have this in your house. But as for me in my house, What? How many of you have it in your house? Be bold. All right, there you go. How many of you left your house back home and then you've come up here to either college or you just graduated college and you've created your own version of this? Or is it just mom and dad? Does mom and dad have it? Okay, uh, here's the context for that verse. It's at the very end of Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me 
And for my house, we're deciding, we're going with Yahweh. Okay? That's one of the big whys of this book of Joshua. And you can see it right there. Now, if you're going, man, I, I love trying to get my arms around the context of all this stuff. Let me tell you. If you're like, man, I wish, I wish fellowship had a class that would just tell me the big story of the Bible. Well, you're lucky. Because actually right now, because of COVID, we have Panorama of the Bible. You can go register for it today. And we have self-paced online classes that you can take at your own pace or with you and your spouse's own pace or you and your disciples' own pace or your community group, uh, you and your kids. So let me commend to you. Go register, find it on the website, register for it, get Panorama of the Bible and work your way through the big story of the Bible, whether for the first time or for review for somebody that took it you know, 20 years ago. We have this class for you to get your arms around the whole of the scripture. Now, that was, that was our time out. Now we're timesing back in, okay? We had to do some background stuff on Joshua. Let's get back to this question of unshakable courage. This is where we're going here today. How do I get it? Why do I need it? I mean, what's its source? Where does it come from? Remember I said, one of the most fundamental, foundational questions for your life is, how will I overcome my fears? What do I do with these? If you have your Bibles, turn back to Joshua chapter one. If you have a digital device, whatever you got, uh, help me out here. Go, let's look at the text itself. Joshua chapter one. We're gonna camp out here today. First, how do I get it? I want you to notice the repetition. If you have a pen or pencil, underline it if you're okay marking in your Bible. Underline the, rep the repetition in Joshua chapter one. I've marked them here for you. Uh, when, as a parent, when you say certain things over and over and over and over again, it usually means it's A, important, or you fear the person that you're talking to, in this case, your kid isn't getting it. So I remember when I first learned how to drive, uh, one of the things that I remember over and over and over again was, when you change lanes, turn your head and look. Don't trust your mirror. When you change lanes, always look. When you change lanes, always look. And now, even when my wife is driving and I'm in the passenger seat and she begins to change lanes, I, I'm looking and she she hates it. She goes, you know I know how to drive, right? I go, I know, I know, I just, I can't help it. I, I, when we change lanes, I have to look, okay? When you say something over and over and over and over and over again, it usually is tipping off, this is important, okay? Now just underline it. Look at it, verse six. Hey, Joshua, be strong and courageous. One verse later, be strong and very courageous. Verse nine, hey, have I not commanded you? I just said it. Have I already, I've already told you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Verse 18, hey, Joshua, if I can sum it up, only just be strong and courageous. I already said it three times. Notice the repetition in Joshua chapter one. Now, this leads me to a couple of questions. The first question is this, or the, the big question is this. Why does Joshua need to be told to be strong and courageous? We don't have time to go back and look at all the narratives. He's been a warrior in battle and he didn't show any signs of fear or timidity. Uh, he was one of the few when the Israelites refused to go up on Mount Sinai because they feared and trembled like this. Moses took Joshua up on the mountain with him. I don't, we don't get any signs that Joshua's also afraid. Took Joshua up on the mountain with him part of the way up. Joshua was one of the 12 spies sent into the land to spy around. And when he came back, 10 of the spies said, we can't do it, it's too scary. And Joshua's like, Yes, we can. We've got Yahweh on our side. We can do this. And all of a sudden, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be st only be strong and courageous. Why? Where's this fear welling up for Joshua? We'll go up to verse one. I think we're gonna get a little insight here. 
after the death of Moses. Now, now there's a saying, we even use it today, you never wanna be the person that follows the legend. It's okay to be the person that follows the person that follows the legend, but you never wanna be the person that follows the legend. Like, we never, can you imagine being John Adams and following George Washington? Everything George Washington did was the first and the best and the great. Here comes John Adams. He was destined to serve one term because he was always gonna be compared to, well, it's not what, it's not what George did, and he's the best. Uh, some of you don't know who this person is. This is Ray Perkins. Uh, he replaced Bear Bryant at Alabama. Bear Bryant won six, some disputed, national championships at Alabama, and when he retired, Ray Perkins took his job. And Ray Perkins did do a bad job, but he only made it four years because the people were always comparing him to the legend, Bear Bryant. His last season at Alabama, they won 10 games and they ran him out of town because he was following the legend. It's never gonna be good enough because Bear Bryant was here before you. And look at Joshua. After the death of Moses, now God says, this seems like it should be obvious, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you. You've had that feeling, right? Like when you were learning to be a teacher, but then you step into the classroom for the first time and the spotlight's on you, and that's no longer theoretical anymore. Or when you're, fi- you're trying to parent and you don't know what you're doing because now the eyeballs are on you, or maybe you're, you're, you got promoted, now you have a team that's looking to you. Or you, start, you went from being in a community group to leading a community group. Now the buck stops with you. People are looking at you to lead. And that comes with like an inherent fear, does it not? It comes with its own set of anxieties. And for Joshua, in this moment, this man that's had some courage, he seems like a strong dude, now all of a sudden, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. These words for strength and courage in Hebrew, they, they have the idea, strong is a really good, a good translation, of resoluteness, firmness, unwavering. They won't crumble, okay? Be strong and don't crumble when they're put together like this. And it leads me to a question how do I get this kind of courage? Okay, great, God, you're, you're saying be strong and courageous. How do I get that? And, and when I think about it in, in our culture, our world, it seems like we have two competing stories for how somebody arrives at courage and strength. There's the modern, American, Western, individualistic way of strength. There's gonna be the Bible's way of courage and strength. Let's start over here. Here's how we arrive at courage and strength. How do I get strength and courage in the modern American individualistic world that we live in? I need to look inside myself. I need to learn more about who I am and what makes me tick and and where I go in stress and where I go in health. And I need to look inward to me And if I can analyze myself and go deeply into me and speak positive thoughts to myself, and then if I can assess, do I have what it takes, I guess, pros, cons list and an assessment check, and then maybe if I can then do that and subjectively, internally feel like I've overcome those fears, I am a strong person, I can do it. To the extent that I do that, I have courage. How do I get it? Look inward. And and if you think about it, it seems like there's whole industries now built on this idea. Now, I'm not mocking these things. I'm not saying they're bad things. But I I feel so much of how we 
discover our strength and our, our poise in life is we go inside ourselves, look more inside ourselves, learn more about me. Well, I'm a four, I'm a four on the Enneagram, and I would never be expected to do this thing that's asked of me because I'm an individualist, and I would never want to do that because it might be difficult for me. So I'm not going to go that way. I'm, I'm in unhealth right now, and if I was in health, maybe, but I'm in unhealth right now. Or I'm an eight on the Enneagram, so of course I could conquer that thing. If you think about it, our looking inward, learning more about ourselves, and that becomes the source of our poise, it's, it's going to be diametrically opposed to what the Bible's going to say. We've got this entire industry of, of essentially saying this, go inward and treat yourself well. Go inward and talk positively, positively to yourself. Self, you can do it. Yes, this thing is scary. You've got this. You're a good person, a strong person. You're in, I'm gonna encourage you today, self, you've got this. We even have a Christian version of this. And I'm not, I was gonna say I'm not mocking. I, I, I am on this one. This is diametrically opposed to what the Bible's gonna say. The, look at the titles of these. The power of I am. That's almost blasphemous. Uh, to empty out the negative. Go inside and take negative thinking away. If I could just live every day like it's Friday, even though it's Monday, but I feel like it's a Friday. How do I get strength and courage in the modern American individualistic way? I look inward. To the extent that I can muster it up and feel it, I'm strong. Now, that's gonna be the opposite of what the Bible says. I want you to see it. Look at, look at what God says to Joshua. He doesn't say, hey, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Hey, and dude, speak positively to yourself and tell yourself happy thoughts. It's not what he says. It's not what Joshua needs. It's not gonna be near enough. Look at what he says. Do be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? For Yahweh, the Lord, your God, circle it, will be with you. We don't look inward for our, the source of our strength, but we look outward for the source of our strength. Just a few verses earlier, circle it. No one will be able to stand against you. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's how you get strength and courage. By the way, he says, as I was with Moses, Moses had to learn the same lesson. Way back in Exodus chapter three, the same idea is repeated. Exodus chapter three, God shows it to Moses. He's wandered around in the wilderness and he says, hey, you know those people, those Hebrew people? They're enslaved to the most powerful nation in the world. I want you to go to that most powerful nation in the world's leader and tell them, let, my, let your labor force go. We're gonna start a new nation. How do you think that's gonna go? And Moses knows it. Look at what he says. Me? Me? Who, who am I that I should stand against Pharaoh? Are you serious? You want me to go do that? And look at God's response. He doesn't go, learn more about your Enneagram number. He says, I will be with you. This is repeated. Look at the New Testament. Jesus gives an outrageous command to his followers. Go out into all of the nations and make disciples of me, a crucified king. And by the way, a lot of those nations, they're not gonna get it and they're gonna reject you. They might even kill you. But he tacks a promise on it. He says, surely I am with you. The source of our strength doesn't come from looking inward, but from looking outward to God's strength with us. Tim Keller, I think, says this so well. He's a pastor in New York. He says it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. 
Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Strong faith in, well, I know myself and I can do it and I'm strong and I'm in positive to me and I feel it. It's fatally inferior to the weakest that God is with me in this. Now, it, it doesn't actually stop there. Look at verse seven and eight. Be strong and courageous. And then, it's, then, then God says this, because the natural question might be, okay, you're gonna be with me, but who are you? Look at it. He says, follow that with, so recognize I'm with you, but follow that with, be careful to obey all the, if your Bible says law, it probably says law as a translation here. I want you to write in the, right above it, Torah. Be careful to obey all of this Torah. The Hebrew word is Torah. Because I want you to study and obey the Torah. Keep this book of the Torah always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything in it. Now, if we, if we take that as law only, I think the, the, the question might be, why in the world does following laws give me courage? I'm afraid, here's some laws, follow them. How does that help me? That shows we have a fundamental flaw in how we understand what the Torah is. The Torah, it means instruction. It came to be known as the, as the books Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this is my working purpose statement for the Torah. Just go here with me. What is the Torah? This might be really helpful for some of us in the room. The Torah is not a rule book teaching people how to obey God perfectly so they get to go to heaven when they die. God's mad. He wants to send everybody to the place you don't want to go. He says, here's some laws. Obey them perfectly. If not, go to that place. That is not what the Torah is. It's not what the law is. Otherwise, it'd be terrible to say, reflect on this, and it'll give you courage. That would make me run, right? Instead, what is the Torah? It is a story teaching the wise reader, the narrative, teaching the wise reader to trust Yahweh, who is a faithful covenant maker and covenant keeper. This story will illuminate that I'm the God who makes promises and keeps them. I'm powerful, I'm the creator, and I'm with you and I love you. It's very purposeful. How do I get courage? I look outward, and then I marinate on the word of God because it will tell me who this God who is with me is. Now, trust me, those two are gonna be way longer than those two. How do I get it? Why do I need it? Uh, look at verse seven and eight. God says it this way, that you may be successful wherever you go, that you might be prosperous and successful. Now, these words put together, they rarely in the Bible mean financially prosperous, okay? What they mean is, this is the life of joy. This is the abundant life of holiness that trusts and obeys me, regardless of your circumstances. Good circumstances or bad circumstances, the successful life is a life dedicated to me that is filled with abundance and joy. Successful life, he calls it. How do we get the successful life? Like if, we, if you go, man, I want that kind of life, that no matter what my circumstances are, oh my gosh, I can have this sort of abundance of holiness dedicated to God and walking with him in, in obedience to him, that would be what he calls successful and prosperous. Man, in order for you to get that, you are going to have to have courage and strength. It's going to require of you to face down and stare down some of the biggest fears of your life. By the way, from the big things, big things like, uh, moving cities to a place where you don't know many people. Maybe some of you did that to come here for college or you've done that for business. Or starting a family or proposing to that person that you're 
with and saying, I'm gonna commit to you for the rest of my life. We're fighting for justice in our world. Big things like being able to to, uh, look across to your spouse when you also feel wronged and say, I'm really sorry. And I hesitate calling these big things and small things because they're, they're just life. Like, like smaller things like fighting for holiness sexually in your dating relationships or fighting for holiness even while married and rejecting pornography. Seemingly smaller things like fighting for holiness when you are on a business trip or fighting for holiness when you're out with your team. Smaller seeming things, smaller things that seem smaller like rejecting and, and saying no to just the crazy swirl of our worldview around us that's coming at us from our news, from both sides. Saying, no, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fix my eyes on what God's word says. Small things, it seems like just getting up in the morning and reading your Bible and praying, sharing the gospel with people in your office, sharing the gospel with your neighbors, going and doing furniture, friends. You see, all of these will require courage. And because he's just way more brilliant than I, I am. I'm just going to quote from Lewis. This is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. You just see it. Why do we need this kind of courage and strength? Look at what he says. God sees that courage is not simply one of the virtues, like honesty or chastity or something like that. It's not one of the virtues. Rather, it's the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger, will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. He follows it by saying, Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Here's the point he's making. If you say, I wanna have the virtue of honesty, then you go and you know that a little dishonesty will win this client or will shade how much you have to pay in taxes, whatever it may be. And you know that if you don't win that client, your competitor will. Now it became risky to be honest. And that's gonna require courage. You see the point he's making? Life, big things and small things will require this kind of courage. How do I get it? Why do I need it? And last, where in the world is this? What's the source of this kind of courage? So I can imagine two responses to this. Some of you might be going, I'm glad we're talking about this. You know, I am a strong person. We got a lot of weak people in the church now, weak people in our country. People need to be strong like I am. I'm glad we're hitting on this. Good, good. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna keep being strong. And I can imagine an opposite reaction. Maybe some of you are going, Man, I get that. I get it. I get where it, how I get it, and I get why I need it. But I'm still scared. Man, man, Garland, I still got tons of anxiety. I don't know. I don't think I measure up, and I don't think I've got what it takes. Can I just pause on that? Both those responses might very well just be your personality or the way you were raised, and both of those responses are the opposite of how do I get my courage. Those are both of you going inward instead of going outward. The answer to where's, what's the source of this courage, as always, it has to come back to Jesus. The Bible is climaxing in this person called Jesus. We consider Jesus' courage in the midst of the battle. Jesus' courage in the midst of the storm. Jesus' courage in staring down the real enemy called sin and death and his victory over them. Like, consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that within moments he'll be betrayed, arrested, beaten. He'll be falsely accused, 
he will be, he'll be tortured and then put up on an instrument of humiliation and execution. And he feels it in that garden, doesn't he? He feels the fear. Oh, what courage. Not my will, but yours be done. And in that act, in his giving of his life, uh, in his courage in the midst of that storm, it accomplishes victory over sin and death. Think about it. The great enemy, the great fear, death. It's been beaten. What could you throw at us? My king has beaten death. It's, there's a reason the Romans had to be frustrated at the early Christians. We'll kill you. Great. You have to go be with Jesus. Fine, we'll let you live. Awesome, more ministry. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna make you suffer. Great, my weakness and he's strong. God, that's gotta be so frustrating. What could you throw at us? Our great enemy's been defeated. Our biggest fear, death, vanquished. So where does it come from? We look at how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's gonna require courage, fellowship. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, because that's the source. And he says, notice it, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and then he is scorning shame. So you can scorn shame. He is washed away death. So Paul can say, hey, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? He sitteth at the right hand of God in heaven. You know why? what that means? He rules and reigns. He's our king. Do you see the courage this gives us? That's where our strength comes from. Not from looking inward, but from looking to him. We fix our eyes on him in Fellowship Fable right now. We're gonna fix our eyes on him as we sing. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to stand and to the degree that you buy this, sing it and declare it over each other. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the source of our courage because your courage and in, you, in the midst of the storm gathering around you, you have vanquished our deepest fear, sin and death. And in you, we are freed. And in you, we get adopted into your family as children of God. And we can scorn shame and mock death, not in our strength, but in yours. So Jesus, we stand with courage. We wanna live with courage, looking to you, fixing our eyes on you. We love you, Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's declare this together. And I was lost in utter darkness Till you came and rescued me And I was bound by all my sin When your love came and set me free And now my heart can sing a new song
spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Come on, church, that is good. We stand in freedom this morning and every day because of the atoning works of Christ. And so let's celebrate this morning as we sing this song. It says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. Let's declare that this morning as we worship. I'm no longer a slave to fear.
God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. I will be with you. A millennium later, Jesus, purchasing our freedom, defeating the enemy of sin and death, tells his followers, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fellowship faith will be strong and courageous. We walk in faith, looking, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you need prayer, prayer is right through there. Communions, if you want to take communion through there. We love y'all. We'll see you right here next week. Have a great week, everybody.